Well, again, Merry Christmas. Uh, for those who may have walked in a little bit late, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer, if I haven't met you, and uh, thank you for joining us in this worship service on Christmas Eve 2019. We're actually talking about something the video you just watched referenced, taking those pauses. It's the pause in between the notes that often makes all the difference. We've been in a sermon series called What I'm Not Doing for Christmas, and so we're pausing in the month of December and this evening to consider what do we need less of? Because you have to admit, Christmas is, is rather overdone in our culture, and we tend to focus on some of the wrong things, and we, we end up getting very exhausted by the time we get to Christmas Eve, and maybe that's how you find yourselves th this evening. I've said it in the series before, Christmas Eve is the single highest day of heart attacks in our country, more than any other day of the year. Isn't that in interesting? And surely that must have something to do with the pace we keep and the pressures of the season. So if you're just joining us, the recap is, is very brief. We talked about rushing around less, not doing that for Christmas, and instead resting and learning what Sabbath rest looks like, punctuating our work with rest and learning how to really renew in our rest. And we talked about not worrying. Let's not worry for Christmas. This Christmas uh, season tends to bring out and amplify some concerns over finances and family gatherings and how the future will turn out and health concerns. But rather than worry, what if we replace worry with wonder, a sense of wonder at God's provision and his love for us, a deeper sense of trust that he holds the world in his hand and he knows us personally and he's going to walk with us and ultimately protect us in the end. We've also talked about not being so consumed with riches, or, you know, I'm referring to the presence under the tree and the consumerism that just launches straight out of the canon of consumerism with the kicking off of Black Friday. And rather than making it all about toys, nothing wrong with presents, but rather than making it about riches, focus on rich relationships. A Harvard study recently concluded that very definitely the one thing that contributes to lasting happiness in human beings are rich relationships. And we as followers of Jesus Christ believe there is one relationship that matters way more than all of them combined, and that is the relationship we have with our Creator. Uh, tonight, we conclude this series. What, what do you think we might talk about? What is one more thing we shouldn't do this Christmas? We could think of a lot, I'm sure, but I'd like to have us consider dishonest doubting. You may have never heard a Christmas Eve message on doubting. But what we're going to see in just a moment from Luke's gospel account is that the, the Christian worldview is much more nuanced when it comes to doubting than you might have understood. Perhaps, for example, you grew up in a tradition where you would ask questions about this extraordinary claim that God became a human being and lived among us and died in our place and rose again. And he was there at the beginning and created all of the existence and knows us personally. And it just seemed incredible to you. And every time you asked a question, you were, you were told by maybe a religious authority or a family member, don't doubt. Stop it. That's not what we do. We just believe here. And that really turned you off. And maybe that's why some of us today, if we're honest, we just don't buy this. And by the way, as a pastor, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you personally how much I respect you for being here. Because you're obviously here 
because you care about a relationship in your life with someone who does and who, who just wants to be with you on Christmas Eve. So just know that I, I have a world of respect for you. And I'm also not going to try to manipulate and change your worldview, but I do want to challenge all of us, believers and non-believers, with this idea of doubt. On the other side of the spectrum, from those of us who were told you can't ask questions, doubt is bad, some of us have kind of elevated doubt to a virtue in and of itself. And if we're honest, it's made us a bit jaded. And we use doubt in a way to kind of control our environment and keep people at an arm's length and not really consider anything that would force us to change our thinking or change our life. Today, I'd like to look at two people in the Christmas story that are typically not talked about on Christmas Eve. One is a man named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Now, they're very elderly. It's an elderly couple who always wanted to have kids, and it never worked out for them. Zechariah is a Jewish priest. He's a priest in the temple, and he has this incredible moment that's described for us in Luke's gospel account where he has an encounter with an angel, a messenger from God, and it scares him. Every time in the Bible when an angel shows up, they're constantly saying, don't be afraid. So whatever angels look like, it's probably not the Lifetime movie channel, uh, Touched by an Angel, or the little chubby cherub uh, Hallmark card version of an angel. Clearly they are imposing. And when this angel has a message for Zechariah, he responds with a certain level of doubt and gets a certain consequence as a result. We'll look at that. Then I'd like us to contrast that with the case study of Mary, who also is greeted by an angel, told not to be afraid, and also responds with an initial degree of doubt, but has a very different result, giving us a very nuanced understanding of doubt as it relates to those who celebrate Christmas Eve. Before I go to the text here in Luke, we'll be in Luke chapter 1, uh, right at the beginning, verse 11. I do want to just acknowledge the claim is incredible. The claim is that God became a little baby. And he had to learn how to talk. And he, he was subject to all the things you were subject to in childhood. And arguably worse, considering he grew up in a very poor, violent part of the world in human history. He experienced being a refugee. He went through all the growing pains of life. And yet this is the creator God showing up in the flesh. I mean, it's an incredible claim. It is so different than the other world religions if you really look at it. And it is so shocking. And I would say if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ and it's never struck you how incredible this claim is, you've never struggled even a little bit with some doubts that have forced you to wrap your mind around the complexity of it and the, and the gravity of the claim, maybe you haven't been thinking deeply enough about that. And so with that as a backdrop, let's go to Luke 1, chapter 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah. He's in the temple now, just him alone, doing a religious ceremony while the crowd waits outside. Standing at the right side of the altar of incense, when Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was startled and was gripped with fear. That's really kind of an unfortunate translation in English. The Greek is a lot more stunning. He was terrified. This guy was very afraid. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. 
for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Then he goes on with some more instructions about how he's to raise his child. And really, he, he tells Zechariah that your son is going to play a strategic role in announcing the Messiah, the rescuer of humanity that our Jewish people have been waiting for, that is on its way to save not just our people, but all people. And then there's that moment when the angel stops talking and Zechariah gets to respond. How does he respond? Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. He said, this just doesn't, now that's not going to happen. I don't know if you being an angel, don't understand human reproduction very well, but, you know, when you get to be in the assisted living home age category, pregnancy is typically not a condition that happens. And, uh, you know, you wonder, how will the angel respond to this type of doubt? The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Did you catch that? The angel apparently is not pleased with Zechariah's doubtful questioning, and he said, you have now forfeited your right to talk for nine months, bro. Now, some of you wives, if you're honest, You'd be okay with that, you know? You'd be okay. It's like, you know, as long as he gets ice cream and pickles during the pregnancy and brings them to me, like, give him a little pad of paper if something's urgent, right? It's one way to get a reflective listening, active listening husband. But really, that does seem a bit harsh, doesn't it? I mean, he just doesn't believe it. And, and of course, elderly people don't get pregnant. And he's been asking for this forever. And not just to mention you're, going to be a dad now is the claim to Zechariah. It's you're going to father arguably the second most important human being in human history up to this point. Wow. Contrast that. Just a few paragraphs later, we read this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's the wife of Mr. Mute, yeah, and so she did get pregnant, and it's happening. Now, in the sixth month of that pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Why Nazareth? Why do they list that? Luke's a, a physician by trade, the one who wrote this account. He's pointing out to the reader, this is like backwater. Like, no one's heard of this place. Like, why would God work through a little place like that? It just seems hard to believe. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Which is really interesting. The Lord is with you. You know, we sing that song that uses the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. We use the word the incarnation in theology to describe what's happening when God becomes a baby. Uh, carne, if you've been in the Chipotle line, means flesh, right? Meat. <laughs> it's a type of meat. And so really that from the Latin is God in the flesh with us. And it's like the angel is saying, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Savior, and that means God is with you. And some of us, that's all you really need to hear tonight. God is with you. Whether you feel him, 
or not, he is as close to you as, as your breath. He is with you and he is for you. Anyways, I digress. The Lord is with you. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. What do you mean God's with me? I'm just a 15-year-old peasant girl in a town that nobody's ever heard of. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Yeshua comes from the root, God saves. Interesting first name to give the Savior of the world. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now he's using all this language that this little young Jewish teenager would have been familiar with. Oh my gosh, are you telling me I'm giving birth to the Messiah? His kingdom will never end, the angel says. Now she has her turn to respond. How does she respond? Does she say, great, I'm on board, let's do it. Because she grew up in a religious education environment where you weren't supposed to ask questions. She said, I have no questions. I'm just going to go for it. Good enough for me. She does not respond like that. She says, verse 34, how can this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Interesting. Their doubt seems to be centered around a common theme here. Old people don't get pregnant and virgins don't give birth to babies. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one, Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. Another way to say God keeps his promises. Always. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. What's fascinating about Mary's experience is she is not censured for her doubt. It's very different from Zechariah. So how can that be? Why, on the one hand, when Zechariah asks the question, it's like, hey, you lose speaking privileges, buddy, for nine months. I stand in the presence of God. I'm Gabriel. How dare you push back in this way? And then just a few pages later, when Mary responds in a similar way, it's like he, he gives her just enough information for her to take the next step of faith that is fueled by rational thinking. Okay, well, I guess that, okay, I don't understand it all, but I can commit at this point. It's very different. And, and here's what I think we have to conclude. God, if God is God, knows the motivation of every one of our hearts. And I think we also might, might just consider for a moment that there are different types of doubt. You ever thought about this? On the one hand, it's very possible to doubt with an open mind. To doubt in such a way where you're saying, I just don't understand. This seems very unbelievable to me. It's going against the way that my culture has trained me to think. For example, Mary, as a young Jewish girl, would have been trained by her, her Jewish worldview to be highly suspicious of any claim that a human being becomes God. Out of all the world religions, if there are world religions that would be on board with that, that believe in avatars and different things like that, not a first century Jewish person. 
And so it just pushes back. But it's like her doubting is an open-minded type of doubt that is actually seeking more information and is willing to change her thinking, her position, her worldview, if there's some rational evidence. What if there's another equal and opposite type of doubting that you might describe as dishonest doubting or stiff-arming doubting? I admit that I've done this before with different things in my life. I found myself using doubt as a way to dismiss the hard work of, of really getting to the bottom of something because I was really more afraid of having to change my position or change my mind or change my routine or my life or to give up some measure of control. If you don't see this in yourself, surely you see it when you watch politics on our TV, right? You see people many times on both sides of the aisle engaging in some real dishonest doubt. They're not really interested in the truth as much as they're passionate about not having to change their position or do the really hard and heavy lifting work of, of really getting to the bottom of something. What if Zechariah was actually doubting in such a way where he, he just didn't even want to engage? He didn't want to change. He didn't want to be challenged. And I guess to make it a little more personal, what if your doubt is like Zechariah's doubt? Now, this could be for someone who's not a believer and thinks Christmas is just a legend, and that's, again, I respect that you're here if you're watching online or you're joining us. I think it's possible that you could just conclude, I don't really want Christmas to be true because if God became a human being to come save me, that means my situation is a lot worse off than I thought. That means at the end of the day, I'm not able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm not pretty much an ethical, great person. I'm actually someone who has a problem that the theologians call sin. And it, it pops up in, in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. And I actually need the intervention of God himself to come and live the perfect life I can't live and die in my place to somehow mysteriously make me right with God again. And if that's true, I would have to give up claim on being the boss of my life. Because if God's coming after me to rescue me and save me, and I really belong to this God, that means I don't get to do whatever I want and go where I want and be who I want. I would actually have to submit and surrender my life to God. And that doesn't sound like something most of us are very objective about, myself included. And so we may just find that we have spent a number of years engaging, rather, in dishonest doubting, in the kind of doubting that shuts down deeper questions, that excuses us out of the conversation, because we just don't want to be open to a possibility that it's true. But this also hits believers. What if there are areas in your life that you're not willing to trust God in. God wants you to move in a certain direction, and you're not willing to do it. God wants you to go show compassion to a group of people, and you don't want to do it. Whatever it is that you don't want to do, and you get the sense God does want you to do it, what if you're using dishonest doubt to kind of disarm that, just to say, I don't know that that's true. I don't think that God wants me to do it. I doubt God wants me to do that. And if you're really honest, you spend a very small amount of time thinking about the alternative because you really are using doubt just to not have to change. So what do we do 
with this dishonest out? I think, I think the simple answer of Christmas is we come to the conclusion that we want to be a lot more like Mary. We want to have honest doubt. What am I not going to do for Christmas? Well, I'm not going to engage in dishonest doubt. I want to read a little uh, bit of a commentary for you I found really fascinating. And it gets at one of the doubts I think we all feel, if we are willing to admit it at times. Some of us, don't you feel like, why did God need to come and save us? Like, w- w- that implies that he's judging us for our sin. Like, why can't he just be more loving? Why can't he just off the bat forgive without this dying business and incarnation business? Because at the heart of it, most Americans, if we're honest, we, we really are more attracted to a God that is just pure love and mercy. I mean, heck, our name Mercy Road kind of reflects this, right? We don't like this idea of justice and judgment, certainly not when it's coming for us. And here's, here's what an interesting theologian had to say about that name, Tim Keller. A God who is only holy would not have to come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together. That we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. A deity that was an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Kind of like your grandparents, you know? When I drop my kids off at the grandparents, it's just the all-loving God, right? They let them eat whatever they want, do whatever they want, and then the kids come back to my house, and now, you know, it's like, well, Doritos for breakfast? Probably not, you know? Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas, but he did. But he did bother with Christmas. And you know that's true because people don't do things for 2,000 years without a pretty grounded historical event that started it. What do we do with these doubts? You know, when I was uh, entertaining the idea of becoming a pastor, it scared me because we were, even back then, moving into a time where I could tell pastors weren't going to be cool. You know, that just wasn't going to be the thing that you introduce yourself at a Christmas party. Oh, what do you do? Like, I'm a biomedical engineer. Oh, that's awesome. You're probably really smart. What do you do? Oh, I'm an airline pilot. Oh, wow, cool. You travel. What do you do? Oh, I tell people that our situation is hopeless enough because we're broken by sin that we need nothing short of the intervention of God to become a baby and live the life we can't live and die the death that we deserve due to sin. And then he welcomes us to eternal life in a perfect community. I'm a pastor. You know, at that point, they back off. They're like, yeah, I'm going to go refill my coffee. And, and more than just not wanting to be judged for my occupation, even deeper than that is I had doubts, you see. The claims seemed too incredible. So I actually changed my major to comparative world religions. And I forced myself to do a really deep dive on all the other religions. Why aren't they true? Why, why could Christianity be different? And in those years of study, it just kept coming back to me that Christianity isn't even a religion. It's a claim not that we need to clean ourselves up to somehow go to God, but it's God coming down to us. Every other world religion, we're going to God. We're trying to initiate, fix stuff, be good enough. Christianity, it's just saying, you're my child, I love you, and even if you reject me, I'm coming for you in the most unarming, disarming package, a little baby. And I'm going to love you so much that I'll die for you. My little uh, daughter is three, and we were at Berean Church down the road 
for a gathering for kids that we were invited to, and uh, she wasn't doing well in the service. And so, you know, Dad and Addie walked into the lobby, and she was just kind of roaming around. They have a nativity set set up. And it looked old, and it kind of looked expensive, just antique And, of course, what does Addie want to do? Can I touch it? I'm like, um, sure, just, just this part. And so she's kind of touching the robe of Mary. And then I look away, and she's, in a blink of an eye, climbed up into the middle of it, pulled baby Jesus out of the manger. And you could kind of tell that baby Jesus had had a similar incident before because it looked like there was a little crack around the arm and somebody glued it back. And that arm's looking a little wobbly, and she's kind of rocking it. And now I'm in this really difficult position as a pastor I mean, you really don't want the earliest memories, I think, do come at age three that we relax and say, I don't know, I'm in therapy, and I just remember my dad screaming, put Jesus down, you know, like, and it seemed to contradict the other things that I was taught, right? So I was like, can you just, can you put Jesus down? No, 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 wait. And now people are kind of noticing, and come on, come on. But then I just really did have this convicted thing where it's like, no, even if she breaks little baby Jesus, I want that little girl more than anything to know that Jesus isn't a myth. And she doesn't have to do anything to earn his love. There's nothing she could do. And that her little instinct to want to embrace Jesus is the right instinct because the irony is he approached her first. And he has come after her. Like Shakespeare writing himself into his own play coming after a character. He loves that little girl even more than I do, which is hard for me to even fathom. He has a good plan for her life. And as sweet as she is, she will, in the course of her life, prove that she too has the virus. She's infected with sin too. And selfishness, and she'll need a savior. And she'll either come to that conclusion and and receive the gift or not. And all those things are true about Adeline, and all those things are true about me. And all those things are true about you on this Christmas Eve. And we have to, I suppose, respond, whether it's for the 500th time or the first time. My uh, former church, uh, two or three churches ago, Eric and I served at a church in Los Angeles, California, Christian Assembly Church. And I was so pleased this week to see on the Facebook feed that they... Uh, we're being recognized in a news story in L.A. because they have recently paid $5.3 million of medical debt off for people in the greater Los Angeles area. Not, not for church growth. These aren't even members of their church. They just raised a lot of money. It's a large church, and they partnered with a nonprofit that basically bundles medical debt together, and you can put pennies on the dollar to medical debt. So they raised something like $60,000 in a service for this. And then they wrote a big check to this nonprofit, and then they targeted all these homes so it would open that letter today. Think about how that must have gone. You go to the mailbox, you're worried. How am I going to pay for this? Will the house go into foreclosure? And it's medical debt, right? And you see an envelope, and the outside makes it kind of look like it's some sort of collections agency. And you open it up, your heart rate is elevated, and all of a sudden it says you owe nothing. 
your balance has been paid for in full. The news story picked it up because people didn't believe it. I mean, some of these people had like $160,000 of medical debt wiped out in a single single envelope. And, and that's kind of hard to believe in an age full of scams. What do you mean I don't owe anything? I suppose that's kind of how it is, though. And it's funny, we, we get this when it comes to medical debt. We get that whether it's right or fair or not fair or, or wrong or right, it's a debt, and we've incurred it. And the insurance company can't just wipe it out. Somebody has to pay for it. And this church in L.A. said, we'll pay for it. People gave up, like, family vacations, put off buying a nicer car, dipped into savings accounts to do that for a total stranger. First of all, what would possess you to do that for someone you'll never meet? And second of all, is there any chance anyone would do that unless somebody did that to them first in a much bigger way? That is the claim. The claim is that God loves you so much and loves me so much. He's canceled the debt by paying for it himself. There was one woman in the news story who so didn't believe that that happened, that someone would do that, that she immediately called the company and tried to warn them that it was a scam and she was going to process her payment as usual. So I suppose if she insists on keep paying this uh, medical debt collection agency her monthly balance, I suppose that is her prerogative, but she doesn't have to. I wonder if she was struggling with some dishonest doubt in that moment. This isn't how it normally works, so it could never work like this. This isn't how my culture taught me how to think about this. It seems too incredible, so I am just not willing to believe it. And I wonder if God, in God's mercy, not in his judgment, his mercy said to Zechariah, I'm going to give you the gift of nine months of silence. Do you know what Zechariah's first words were when he regained his speech on the other side of the birth? A song. Zechariah's song. You can read about it in Luke 1. It's just this stanza after stanza of praise to God, but it's kind of a nerdy song. It's a song with a bunch of references from the prophets. It was like he spent nine months saying, if I can't talk, I really got to figure this out, and he just war-gamed it out and, and got on the whiteboard and said, how could it be true? Could, and then all of a sudden, he can talk again, and he said, I get it. I connected just enough got, dots to believe, and now it's wonderful. And now I see how good God is, even better than I ever imagined. And now I see how God doesn't just love me, he likes me. And God has always liked me. Not because I'm so likable, but because he's the best dad in the universe. He's my heavenly father. It's a beautiful song. I'm not sure where you're at with the metaphorical envelope that is sent to you that we call the gospel, the good news, with the little note in there that says your debt has been wiped out by somebody else in a costly way, out of love. But my greatest hope for you, even beyond resting more, worrying less, not focusing too much on presence, but rather getting more balance in our life this Christmas, my greatest prayer for you is that you would receive with honest doubting and then honest trusting.
That might take time. Boy, that could happen tonight. Lots of people wonder how you initiate it. I think you simply just say, God, I don't understand it all, but I do choose to believe that you sent the envelope and you paid the debt. And I receive that. Help me to do the next logical thing in light of this good news. I'd like to end this service on Christmas Eve 2019 with a tradition we do, and many of you grew up doing a candle light in our hand and singing on behalf of the fire marshal. I do want to make sure we do uh, light this place on fire. So I'm going to um, start, and it's very important that as you light the candle of your neighbors, try not to get wax on the chairs because they're new as of yesterday. But even if you do, people are really more important than things, so we're okay with it. Uh, but, but just to that end, let's model this here. Gracie, can you stand up so 